right, we are back. If this is your first time listening to this program or your, I don't know, 300th time, you have no doubt noted by now that we're not really tightly scripted. We're trying to be interesting. We're trying to be informative. We're trying to amuse. But how we go about doing any of that is, is well, it's pretty wide open. We're great admirers of people that can make that work, you know, like improv comedians. Or Peter Sagal. Mr. Sagal is, of course, the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is something of an oddity, a news quiz program. Only it's not really a news quiz program. It sort of wanders around in the news of the week, but, you know, I think on a weekly basis kind of makes something from nothing. Not nothing exactly, but sometimes not a lot. So as an admirer of Mr. Sagal, when I came across his book in a bookstore titled the Book of Vice, subtitled Very Naughty Things and How to Do Them, I snagged myself a copy. And yes, Ms. Marilla, this was strictly for research purposes. I've been skipping around in it and haven't really read more than about, I don't know, 20% of it at this point, so I can't quote from it extensively, but I did stumble across one little, one little item I thought was worth sharing. Well, simply to illustrate the fact that he's a pretty decent writer, said Peter Sagal. Contrary to popular belief, President Clinton was not a particularly accomplished liar. The primary source of awkwardness between him and the truth was his need to tell people what they wanted to hear. It was once said that, as president, he always agreed with the last person he'd spoken to. But that's not true. He merely told the last person whom he'd spoken to that he agreed with him or her, which he also said to the person before that and the person after that. When the time came to actually confirm or deny a fact, he showed a lawyer's precision with language and a formerly fat fatherless boy's need to be liked. For example, his odd and transparent 1991 declaration about his use of illegal drugs. Quote, I've never broken any drug law, unquote. That, of course, is not exactly what he was asked, but it seemed conclusive enough. Illegal drugs are, ipso facto, illegal. And thus, if he'd broken any laws, well, then. Of course, he admitted shortly thereafter that he meant state law, and that he tried marijuana in England, i.e. outside the jurisdiction of any state. And then he admitted one of the poorest, most pathetic evasions ever. I didn't inhale, said Peter Sagal, to lie like this with a constant eye towards some future defense from the charge of lying, is like trying to pitch a baseball game from your knees. So it was when the worst crisis of his presidency and life came upon him, it took him a while to stand up and do things correctly. Anyway, as you may recall from those times not so long ago, investigator Ken Starr cooked up an ambush for President Clinton in a, his deposition in the Paula Jones lawsuit a lawsuit which should never have been allowed to go forward while Clinton was president. Anyway, once Bill Clinton, well, admittedly, told an untruth during his deposition, Starr then suddenly launched a perjury and obstruction of justice investigation and leaked it to the press. You know, I have to stop right there just thinking about it. It just, it makes me sort of wistful and nostalgic, looking back at a time when perjury and obstruction of justice were considered issues that needed to be addressed. It also makes me nostalgic looking back at a time when the President of the United States would open up his mouth on a regular basis. He would say things that were true. 
Not always, but often. True. Anyway, I'll have more to say about that book in the future, I think, but it is something to look back upon. A president that didn't always lie and was actually pretty lousy at it when he did. Let's do a little follow-up. We spoke a couple weeks back on this program with our favorite travel agent, Mr. Stan Godwin. He talked about things in China. And uh, what he had to say was caught up with by the Wall Street Journal, who says the following, cash or credit. Tourists in China are finding those options aren't enough, according to Shan Lee, writing in the Wall Street Journal. As China goes increasingly cashless, mobile payment apps like Tencent, WeChat, Pay and Alipay are how people hail taxis, consult doctors, pay for meals, and book flights. Indeed, even street carts and beggars are asking for money via QR code. While it's arguably made life easier for China's 1.4 billion people, I would argue that, it can leave the 140 million tourists arriving in the mainland each year helpless. The dominant payment platforms don't function without a Chinese bank account, and credit cards are quickly becoming obsolete. Even cash is for the dinosaurs, though the People's Bank of China recently made it illegal for businesses to refuse cash. One visitor from Sweden found a shopkeeper at the Great Wall wouldn't take her wand for a bottle of water. Well, there's some are saying maybe it's time to boycott China. At least Mr. McMillan's saying that. All right, and speaking of tech and how it may go wrong, and I guess that's just exactly what we were doing, how about this one from New Scientist? Note of the magazine, a trap that kills feral cats by spraying them with with a lethal gel they lick off while cleaning themselves is being trialed as a way to save endangered Australian wildlife. The article notes that since their introduction in the 18th century, cats have severely harmed Australia's ecology by preying on native birds and small mammals. They have contributed to the extinction of more than 20 Australian animals. In 2015, the Australian government set a goal of culling 2 million of the estimated 6 million cats living in the wild by the year 2020. Well, I'm sure they didn't make that. And of course, this has been complicated by the fact that cats prefer live prey to eating poison baits. And they're simply too numerous to be controlled by shooting. Enter high tech. To address these problems, John Reed at the University of Adelaide and colleagues have invented an automated device for culling cats that takes advantage of their compulsive self-grooming rituals. The solar-powered device, called the Felixer, has laser sensors that detect a cat as it walks past based on its size, shape, and gait. When activated, the sensors trigger the release of a toxic gel that squirts onto the cat's fur. The cat later licks the gel off while routinely cleaning its coat. The gel contains a commonly used poison called sodium fluoroacetate that halts the production of energy in cells. The poison is thought to euthanize cats painlessly because it causes unconsciousness before shutting down brain activity, said John Reed, the inventor. An initial trial with two cats in a pen found they passed out within six hours of being squirted and died within 10 hours. As a test, researchers recently installed 20 Felixers in a 
2,600 hectare fenced paddock in South Australia that's inhabited by feral cats and native wildlife. Cameras showed that the traps correctly identified, sprayed, and killed feral cats, causing their population to decline by about two-thirds over six weeks. Reportedly, no native animals activated the traps or were poisoned. Yes, no word on whether any of the dead cats were scavenged by the wildlife. Boy, this story gets better. Some cat protection groups say the most humane way of controlling Australia's feral cats would be to trap them, surgically sterilize them, and then return them to the wild. But reportedly Di Evans at Animal Charity RSPCA Australia says this is impractical. Uh, Hello? But they're arguing because feral cats often live in remote, hard-to-access areas. And so, yeah, Evans is on board, saying... The Felixer traps are preferable to poison baits because they specifically target cats and are therefore less likely to harm other animals. Mr. McMillan? Felix the cat, the wonderful, wonderful cat. You laugh so much, your sides will ache, your heart will go pit a pat. Watch it, Felix, the wonderful cat. Yeah, your heart may go pitter pat if you're watching Felix, the wonderful cat. But if instead you bump into the Felixer, your heart is going to slow down and stop. Anyway, we've, we've got a few more interesting tech items for you from the What Could Possibly Go Wrong file. And, uh, you know, I need to take a pause here and, and go back a bit here and go back to Bill Clinton, impeached for having a surreptitious sexual relationship that was improper. Clinton gets impeached for this. Meanwhile, Donald J. Trump whose campaign clearly made illegal contributions to various women to keep their stories under wraps, well, uh, that's quite a different matter. The Southern District of New York was, up till a couple months back, taking a look at those hush payments to Trump's alleged mistresses, but decided not to pursue it. Keep in mind that Trump's fixer, Michael Cohn, is in prison partly for breaking campaign finance laws, which he said he did at Trump's direction. Unsealed documents show that Trump had a flurry of phone calls with Cohn about payments for Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal just days before the 2016 election. Yet, in New York, prosecutors reportedly felt handcuffed by Justice Department guidelines against indicting a sitting president. Well, I guess those guidelines weren't in place back when Bill Clinton was president. Also, they reportedly were stuck over the fact that they they would have to have proved that Trump knew that such payments were illegal. We have to admit, that is a bit of a high hurdle, requiring that Trump be actually aware of the fact that the things he's doing are illegal. Anyway, there was a headline in the paper just today that investigators are looking into the possibility of, geez, perjury and obstruction of justice charges against the president. Based on the fact that he's lying about what he said, what he did, what he knew, why he did what he did, fill in the blank. But to quote from the week's reporting, the House is investigating whether President Trump committed perjury in his written testimony to Robert Mueller. Trump testified he was unaware of contacts between his 2016 campaign and WikiLeaks. Yet, as reported earlier on this show, former Deputy Campaign Chairman Rick Gates testified at Roger Stone's trial that Trump and Stone spoke about WikiLeaks's future releases of stolen Democratic emails. After one phone call, Trump allegedly told Gates the damaging information would be coming. 
House lawyers asked a federal appeals court to release grand jury evidence from the Mueller probe regarding Trump and WikiLeaks. House General Counsel Douglas Letter told the judges, the president might have provided untruthful answers. And this is a key part of the impeachment inquiry. You know, and and no progress on uh, the proper naming of Devin Nunes as Devin Nunes. They still keep calling him Nunez or Nunez. Devin kept making a big deal at the inquiry about how this was all just hearsay, right up till Ambassador Gordon Sondland's devastating testimony. This caused even NationalReview.com, oh, National Review, founded by William F. Buckley, that notable critic of music. Even NationalReview.com is having you say the Republicans know the facts are against them, so they've decided to create a scene at the hearings, hoping if they scream and stomp their feet enough, voters may conclude it's just one big partisan circus. In our view, it is the Republicans that are following that, uh, that strategy that law students are informed of, that, which is that if the law's on your side, bang on the law. If the facts are on your side, bang on the facts. If neither is on your side, bang on the table. And man, have they been pounding the table. Since I'm taking a political detour here, which I will get off of in a second, I, I, I just have to add one final thing. According to the Washington Post, the Secret Service had a list of four finalists to host the G7 summit when they were told to add President Trump's Doral Resort to the list in July, according to newly released emails, which led to the short-lived decision to award the summit to the president's property. This revelation contradicts the White House's claim that Trump's property was selected after a thorough search process. And by the way, if anybody thinks the Republican Party is going to abandon Donald Trump in 2020, keep in mind that Republican leaders in Nevada, South Carolina, and Kansas have all voted to scrap their presidential nominating contests in 2020 and thus place more hurdles in the path of any long-shot candidates who might want to challenge Donald Trump. Anyway, where's Pete McCloskey when you need him? In 1972, McCloskey challenged incumbent President Richard Nixon. Didn't get very far, but he challenged him. He was a wonderful guest on this program some years back, by the way. And, you know, I'd like to, like to hear his take on some of this. Maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll look him up. Maybe he'll talk to us. It would be fun. Back to tech. The New York Times notes that Americans in 2019 feel adrift and powerless about living under the glare of digital surveillance. More than four in five respondents to a Pew Research Center survey said that there's more risk than benefit in data collection by companies. But few think there's anything they can do about it. An overwhelming majority of us, 86%, feel we have little or no control over our search and purchase and browsing histories, and that our texts and social media wanderings are easily monitored. Tech companies have taken to claiming that users, not the companies, are in charge of their data, but it's clear Americans don't believe them. To which I would add, and why should they? We do want to plug the couple of, or actually trio of former Google employees who were drawn to the promise of Silicon Valley at one time, but have now founded a company that will pay Bay Area residents $10,000 to move away. Launched some weeks back, San Jose-based Main Street aims to entice people frustrated by the astronomical housing costs and soul-sucking traffic to places such as 
Sacramento or Salt Lake City. The key to this is they're planning to find and manage employees willing to move out of the Bay Area and to work remotely. I'm not sure why it is they can't work remotely right now and have to commute into the Bay Area. Well, we've talked about this ad nauseum. It's not necessary. It's very counterproductive. And the reason the big tech companies do it is because it makes more money for the big tech companies. End of story. And here's an item for you. Regulators and lawmakers raised questions about Google's work with the nation's second largest health system to gather and analyze records of we millions of Americans. That's according to Rob Copeland writing in the Wall Street Journal. The Project Nightingale initiative, revealed in the journal last week, began in secret last year, that's always a good sign, with Ascension, a chain of 2,600 hospitals and medical facilities. At least 150 Google employees have access to much of the data, including lab results, doctor diagnoses, and hospitalization records, together with the patient's names. Federal regulators have asked Google for more information about the program, with at least one lawmaker calling for it to be stopped. Gee, gee, don't want to rush into things. Is anybody afraid of HIPAA violations anymore? Well, what the heck? Nobody's worried about obstruction of justice or perjury. Let's just throw HIPAA into the mix. And then there's this from the good people of the New York Times. As consumers, we all have secret scores, hidden ratings that determine how long each of us waits on hold when calling a business, whether we can return items to a store, and what type of services we receive. These e-scores are often believed to be inaccessible, but Kashmir Hill, writer for the Times, got his from a company called Swift, and quote, I found it shocking, unquote. It was 400 pages long and contained all the messages I'd ever sent to hosts on Airbnb and years of Yelp delivery orders. Sift is not the only company in the business of scoring customers and then selling that data to clients. Five of them, Sift, Zeta, Global, Retail Equation, Riskified, and Customer, with a K, will share the data they have on you if you contact them or fill out on online form. Well, it's nice that they'll give you the same data they're selling to other people. And a few weeks back, the CEO at Uber got into some hot water, but some comments he made about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi Arabian government. He called the murder a mistake, but said, it doesn't mean they can never be forgiven. This is adding a little bit to Uber's woes that uh, started out when one of its cars killed a pedestrian in Arizona. That would be a self-driving car, we point out. CEO Dara Khosrowshadi said, It's a serious mistake. I guess he's referring to Khashoggi at that point, but added, We've made mistakes too with self-driving. We've stopped driving, and we're recovering from that mistake. So I think that people make mistakes. It doesn't mean that they can never be forgiven. Adding to this controversy is the fact that an arm of the Saudi government is one of the largest investors in Uber. Hmm, could be a coincidence. Also, there's the fact that Yasser Othman al-Rumayan, who runs the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, sits on Uber's board. The CEO has called him a very constructive member of Uber's board. In another Saudi Arabia-related news, we have this. Two former Twitter employees were charged by the Justice Department with spying on behalf of Saudi Arabia. 
This is according to the Wall Street Journal. One, Ahmad Abouamo was arrested in Seattle last week and is accused of trying to obtain personal information about Saudi Arabia's critics, including the email address of one prominent critic of the Saudi royal family with more than one million Twitter followers. The second, a former website maintenance worker, Ali Azbara, allegedly used his credentials to access over 6,000 Twitter accounts in 2015 on behalf of the Saudi government. A third Saudi national, Ahmed Al-Motiari, was also charged for his role in persuading the men to access the information, paying them with cash, and at least in one case, a watch. We're almost positive it wasn't a Timex. we got about five minutes left, and I do want to talk about the dark side of binging. The new statistics shows that 1% of the estimated global CO2 emissions is due to online video. And Elon Musk's SpaceX is interfering with astronomy again. And we want to talk about how the batteries many are envisioning for flying cars, uh, well, don't exist yet. And how there is a looming electric car battery waste mountain. Seems to be certain in our future. Instead, I'm going to put all that off till next week's show. And instead, I'm going to pull an essay from the New Yorker, which quite tickled me, and see if we can't excerpt it. I'm sort of inspired to, to quote from this article because the last farm in the town of Fremont, at least that's how they labeled themselves, had a fruit stand not a quarter mile from where this correspondent grew up. Up to about a year ago, you could go over there and buy fresh produce grown right there on the premises or nearby. I used to take over my Fuyu persimmons and let them resell them. A wonderful little patch of land is now buried under 300 future units of worker housing. Oh, we're also going to talk on next week's program about Facebook's beachhead in Fremont. But on a happier note, let's talk about someone else's experience with a fruit stand. Note of the unidentified author, I met my first New York foodie over 20 years ago. I was 17, hawking, quote, local bananas, unquote, at a roadside produce stand in rural New Jersey. It was my first job, and I worked all day on my own. My instructions were to claim that all the produce was local, although nothing was or could be local. It was early June in northwest New Jersey, but local was the magic word, hand-painted on our signs. It was what made our customers, most of them New Yorkers driving to country vacation cottages, slam on their brakes and pull over. For the first time in my life, I heard about the naturalness, tradition, and superior flavor of New Jersey produce. Taste-wise, nothing compares to Jersey Silver Queen, the New Yorkers declared, clawing at ears of fat-kerneled North Carolina-grown, super-sweet, hybrid, all-sugar, and no-corn flavor. Nothing like Silver Queen. They tossed the husks. They tossed the husks. They tossed the husks on the ground for me to rake up. Give me Jersey peaches over Georgia any day. Those were Georgia peaches they were palming to their kids, whispering, eat up, before the fruit had been weighed and paid for. I wait every year for real Jersey tomatoes. You can't get that country flavor in the city. They couldn't get it here either. These were New Mexican beefsteaks, greased with mineral oil to an enticing sheen and petroleum fragrance. I dreaded the New Yorkers. They were my first foodies, a type that until then I hadn't known existed. Growing up, In a middle America meat and starch eating household, I'd never before met people with strident opinions about vegetables' quality, freshness, and origins 
who would use their children as mules to smuggle 40-cent nectarines to their cars. Their foodieism was the worst kind, all about visual aesthetics and immediate gratification. They tried to haggle me. They squeezed and bruised the tomatoes. They pawed through my displays to find the two prettiest peaches at the bottom, dropping the rest on the ground. They asked me to pick a pound of the best cherries, one by one. They sneaked extra corn into their shopping bags and paid for only a dozen. When caught, they protested the stand down the road sold a baker's dozen. I told them, 14's not a baker's dozen. They grumbled all the way to their Mercedes. Yet I didn't like cheating them. When questioned about the produce's Provence, I told the truth. The tomatoes aren't from around here, but they did arrive this morning. Local tomatoes won't be ripe until July. The foodies argued, but I bought local Silver Queen from the stand down the road last week. I said, the stand down the road is lying. Local Silver Queen won't ripen until August. They didn't believe me. They couldn't bear the challenge to their connoisseurship. They had traveled to Jersey in search of an authentic country food experience, and they'd be damned if they didn't get it. Their quest for authenticity didn't stop there. They asked me, what are you doing down here? Last year an American owned this stand. He still owned it, but he'd hired me, an Asian-American who didn't look the part of a rustic local. I've been summering here since I was a kid, but people like you keep coming in here and buying up the local businesses. None of the other employees got these questions. The idea that I might know something about vegetables that they, with their sophisticated yet earthy palates and vaunted vegetable-selecting skills didn't, was a disruption to their foodie performance. They never learned that if you hector a non-white teenager about displacing white people's jobs, she's going to hide rotten tomatoes in the bottom of your bag. I started wearing a big straw hat to work. Sales improved. So when my boss's son put up a sign, local bananas, I left it alone. A few foodies laughed. A few questioned me accusingly. How could bananas be local? Greenhouses, I said one day. Miles and miles of greenhouses. In Andover Township. The word township got them. It was so quaint. A few local customers came to my rescue. Started when an old man in dungarees and a baseball cap parked his pickup and asked me, How local are these local red peppers of yours? I sized up the way he was sizing me up and said, They're local to Mexico. He laughed and he bought one. He was a retired farmer. I started looking out for and chatting with other farmers, most of them retired. They knew that the stand was a fraudulent imitation of the farm stand's that used to belong to the Garden State's mostly vanished family farms. They knew the cherries came from Washington, the grapes from California, and they were grown on corporate holdings, not family businesses. They didn't ask stupid questions, interrogate me on my immigration status, or steal. They had every reason to hate my job and what it stood for, but they always treated me with kindness and humor. So I always fetched them the ripest, most perfect fruits and vegetables. Anyway, it's an amusing little piece. You may want to look it up and read it in its entirety, which I'm sure you can do online. That was, again, from The New Yorker, and it was titled Lessons from a Local Food Scam Artist. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan, who has never been known to steal nectarines at a fruit stand. Well, he's certainly never been caught at it anyway. Anyway, in closing, I just want to throw in one final quote. We do live in some troubled times. I like to quote the Roman poet who said, Let others praise ancient times. I'm glad I was born in these. That was said by the ancient Roman poet, Ovid. And that just kind of tickles me. I hope it tickles you too. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.